And I hate, you know, every week, the guy who's preaching has to call you away from talking with one another. So let's try to get this here. There we go. How are we feeling? Beards can sometimes be, while always a blessing, can be a hindrance in these moments. And so, there we go. Well, how are we doing, Scott? We all right, brother? Well, it's good to hear you all greeting one another. We'll get this worked out. It'll just be a minute or so. Um, it's good to be together this morning, is it not? It's cold outside, um, but it's warm in here. Uh, good to worship with you all. Um, and now excited as we turn our attention to the word. My name is Ben, and I'm one of the pastors of Eastside Church. Uh, we've been kind of squatting here at the Vine for the last six months or so. And um, we're eagerly anticipating a launch on Easter, Lord willing. And so you just have to put up with us a little bit longer. Um, but later this spring... Um, we hope to launch. And even though Easter is later uh, this year than it has been in years past, it's like towards the end of April, it's still, now that we're on this side of 2019, feels like it's coming real fast. And so on behalf of Michael and the core group for Eastside Church and myself, I just want to invite you, would you pray for us? Would you, um, we're going to tr- do our best to update the Pray Eastside Slack channel more often, uh, maybe sneak some things in the weekly email so that you can be aware of what God is doing as we seek to plant Eastside Church on the near east side of Madison for his glory and the events of the gospel. So this morning we're going to continue in a series that we began last week. It's kind of a mini-series inside of the larger series that we're going through in the gospel of Matthew on the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes are the opening section of one of the most famous sermons preached by Jesus called the Sermon on the Mount. And in this sermon, Jesus is teaching his disciples all about his kingdom, how it operates differently from how the world operates. Jesus is helping them and us to see that the world we live in is broken, and the way to put it back together is to leave it behind for a better one. In this new world, we will experience life as it was meant to be, and instead of broken and corruption all around us, we will have the best king ever, and his name is Jesus But we can't buy our way in. We can't earn our way in. No, that's not how things work in God's economy, in his kingdom. Rather, all we can do, all we must do, is realize that we are poor in spirit and without hope on our own. We have to believe the truth that we bring nothing to the table, but can only receive. The doorway is low into the kingdom of heaven. Michael showed us that last week. But it's worth shedding all of this whole world in order to get through it. So as we look throughout history, and we think about kingdoms, it's really easy to see that the number one indicator of the health of the kingdom is the character of the king. The king sets the tone for how his people will relate to one another and to the neighboring kingdoms. If he is a good king and a kind king, then his people will be good and kind. If he's a warmongering tyrant, his people will be many warmongering tyrants. A king's character is paramount to his rule, being a good one or not. And the number one place that a king's character comes into play is the way that he makes laws and the way he enforces them. The good news for us is that Jesus is the best king. And so as we work through these nine Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, we're going to see that our king, Jesus, makes the best laws. His kingdom operates the best. As Michael helped us to see that the kingdom of heaven is actually like another world inside of our own. 
on this side of heaven, we're in an already but not yet state. And so as we look at the laws of the kingdom, it's important for us not to think about them like traffic laws. They're not like tax laws. They're not like city ordinances that say how many chickens you can own or when you have to put your garbage out or things like that. But instead, we need to understand the kingdom of heaven like another world. And so we think about the laws like we think of the laws of physics. Three laws of motion, conservation of mass and energy, the laws of thermodynamics. These laws all explain how our world operates, how it fits together, and how our universe and dimension of time and space is set to function. We call them laws because they're unchangeable and the starting points that help us to understand how the rest of everything works. This is how the Beatitudes function. As we seek to understand how the kingdom of God holds together and operates, the Beatitudes help us to understand the starting point for everything. They're not laws to be obeyed, necessarily, but laws that describe how things operate in the kingdom. So Jesus is calling all of his disciples, all those who follow him, to learn these laws so that we might better live for him in his kingdom. So as we look again at Matthew 4 this morning, our next beatitude, my hope is that we will see what it looks like to mourn with Jesus so that we can receive blessing and comfort from Jesus. So let's look at Matthew 5, 1 through 4 together. If you have your Bible, you can open the app or open the pages, digital, analog, both welcome. Both the same word of God. And I'll read the first four verses and then pray for us as we get started this morning. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he began teaching them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you this morning, and we are aware that we need help to understand what you say in your word. Spirit, I pray that you would show us a big vision of Christ this morning, that we might learn well what it means to mourn and what it means to receive comfort, and how, God, you have worked those two things together in this kingdom that you're calling us to live in. So, God, we ask your help now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, for the second week in a row, we're faced with something that seems upside down. It's counterintuitive. Yet it rolls off Jesus' tongue super smoothly, doesn't it? And it's in a way that you want it to make sense, but it just doesn't at first. How can it be that mourners are the blessed ones? The dictionary defines mourning like this. To feel or show deep sorrow, regret for someone. Some synonyms for mourn are grieve, sorrow over, lament for, weep for, shedding tears for and over, and to wail. How could Jesus possibly say that people who are experiencing emotions like those are blessed people? It's not what our culture would recognize as a blessed life. A blessed life in our world is low on consequences and high on freedom to do whatever makes us feel good with people who support our every decision without question and throw in a few million dollars for good measure. But Jesus says that isn't how he rates people. 
That's not how things work in his kingdom. His kingdom doesn't operate like that. His kingdom offers comfort and blessing only to those who mourn. Jesus even warns those who laugh when they should be mourning in Luke's version of the Beatitudes when he says, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. It isn't the laughing that Jesus is against. It's the laughing in the face of mourning. It's being short and being quick to go to a place of shutting out the mourning and so putting on laughter and putting on jokes instead of rightly seeing and rightly reacting. Jesus is saying that if we see things his way, we will not be quick to laugh because the reality is there is a lot to mourn. So as we continue to learn from Jesus this morning, we're going to answer two questions. The first question is, what does it mean to mourn? And the second question is, what does it look like to mourn? And so our first question, what does it mean to mourn? The key to entering the kingdom of heaven is plain in verse 3. We must be poor in spirit. We have to be aware that we're not wealthy people when it comes to what really counts in God's economy. Our spiritual banks are empty, and actually we've run up a huge bill. One that we can never hope to repay no matter how long we would work or try. The reality is we can't earn enough to pay God back. Five billion dollars has been a number that's been floating around in social media lately. You may have noticed it. And on Twitter, I saw a really interesting tweet tweet thread about it. The author was trying to help people realize how big just one billion dollars was, let alone five by listing several scenarios uh, of what it would take to earn $1 billion. He did it several different ways, but the one that stood out to me was this. If you were to make $50,000 a year, and you saved every single penny of that $50,000, it would take you 20 years to earn $1 million, which I was actually kind of encouraged by. I just feel like that's, that's a lot shorter than I thought. But... The goal is $1 billion. If you kept going, saving every penny of the 50000 that you made in a year, 365 days, it would take you 20,000 years to earn $1 billion. And another 80000 before you would get to $5 billion. It's impossible. Because most of us will be dead after about 80 years. But that's $4 million. So there's that. But it's not enough to pay the debt. This is kind of what our debt with God is like. We can't pay because we just won't be alive long enough to ever earn. We can't ever do it, even if we could be alive for forever. We're completely bankrupt when it comes to God's economy. So this is what Jesus is saying is the starting place for mourning our sin. Our sin against God is our biggest problem. And even when we've seen God's goodness and humbled ourselves in light of what Jesus has done for us on the cross and entered into the kingdom, Jesus reminds us right away, don't move on. Don't go back to your old ways of being puffed up with pride, thinking that maybe somehow you got in on your own or that somehow you can stay in on your own. We can't. So what Jesus calls us to do is to mourn. To continue to see ourselves rightly in light of our sinfulness and God's glory and holiness. 
So what does that look like? What does it mean? Does it mean we should never laugh? Never express joy? Never enjoy something that tastes good or feels nice? I mean, I would be right out. That's not what Jesus is saying. But he is saying there's a goodness to staring our sin in the face instead of ignoring it or trying to entertain ourselves to death to forget it. That's what our culture is good at. They're constantly inventing new ways of stopping the aging process, stopping pain. I mean, look at the opioid crisis in our country. It's off the charts. The number one function of opioids is to dull pain. But Jesus says pain is good. God has a better way for us. Listen to what the writer of Ecclesiastes says. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of the mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Do you hear Jesus warning against laughing? Jesus actually picks up this passage again in Luke 4, where he quotes it. The danger that exists for us in the house of feasting, the house of laughter, the house of mirth, is that we would forget our sin is real and deceptive and leads ultimately to death. This is what Jesus warned us about. Those who laugh will eventually mourn and weep. Death is the inevitable result of sin. And when we see the end game, sin is no longer a laughing matter. Instead, we are drawn away from the house of laughter to the house of mourning as we realize and grieve the fact that eventually death comes to everyone, including us, because of sin. But in the kingdom of heaven, we don't go to the house of mourning alone. God has promised us blessing and comfort if we would mourn our sin, and the comfort is found in Jesus. Listen to what Isaiah 61 says. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has appointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. The good news is that Jesus goes to the house of mourning with us. And he's the best of comforting companions because he has mourned the deepest, the most. He cried in front of his dead friend's tomb, mourning the effects of sin on the world that he lovingly created and joyfully sustains. He experienced the loss of family support, friends who deserted him in outright betrayal. He wept while looking over the city of Jerusalem, which was meant to be a holy city filled with worship and praise to God, but instead had become a den of robbers and thieves and moneylenders, occupied by a foreign power, a place where sin runs rampant, a city where he would be crucified outside the gates instead of lifted up and honored and worshipped at its center according to his due. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, 
and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So let me ask you, is there a better companion as we mourn our way through this life? Is there any better blessing than to be near to the one who would lay down his life for ours so that we might live, even though the reason he had to do that was because of us? No. Is there any greater comfort than knowing that the sins we rightly mourn have been covered by his blood and we stand righteous and clean and holy before him? No. There is no greater comfort in life or death than that we belong to Jesus and that he will hold us fast until the day he comes back to bring us home. He's paid the price for our freedom with his own life so that we could be with him so that we could mourn with him and so that he could comfort us. That's the good news that we call the gospel. It's the power for salvation for every sinner, every single one. So this brings us to our second question. We've looked at what does it it look like to mourn? I'm sorry, we've looked at uh, what does it mean to mourn? And now we need to look at what does it look like to mourn? Because this can get a little... Sideways, if we're not careful. The mourning of our indwelling sin is supposed to be a distinguishing mark for everybody who's looking to follow Jesus, who's learning from Jesus, who's seeking to be like Jesus. I mean, we just experienced this morning the symbol of death and burial over sin, and yet we know that there is glorious resurrection as well. By rehearsing the gospel that Jesus Christ died for our sins daily, we put ourselves in the best position possible to continue mourning our sin because we keep both our sin and our Savior in front of us. We have been set free through what Jesus has done. And as we do this, as we mourn our sin by rehearsing the gospel, keeping the Savior in front of us, keeping our sin in front of us, receiving comfort, practicing mourning, we become more like Jesus. And the way that we view ourselves in the world around us begins to change. The more we learn from him and mourn with him, the more we see the world as Jesus sees it. Over time, the effect is not less mourning, but more mourning. But it's also not less joy, it's more joy. Because we are growing closer than ever to Jesus So there's more comfort than ever in an ever-increasing way because Jesus is with us. Listen to Paul as he proclaims the goodness of God and the hope that is ours to share with a broken world. This is 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 5. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any Affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Paul's joy overflows because he has come to know the incredible comfort and contentedness that can only come from being with Jesus. And he's eager to share it with the world around him. 
This is another example of how Jesus' kingdom operates upside down and backward to what the world says is right. We can mourn out loud for all to see because our identity is secure in Christ. We've nothing to prove. As we mourn, we remind ourselves again that we have nothing to bring and that we can only receive. And the result of putting that on display is that it blows the categories of our self-exalting, pleasure-seeking, pain-minimizing, do-whatever-feels-right-whenever-you-want culture to pieces. Because they're all trying to lock up their identity in those things. And we're secure in Jesus. It's completely counterintuitive. And it's precisely what God uses to grab the attention of those that he is saving. The reason that God joins comfort together with mourning is that he wants to see that the world, he wants the world to see that our pain on display along with the blessing and comfort he provides in Jesus is hope for them. Because Jesus is their only hope, just as he's our only hope. In the midst of all the brokenness and suffering, the kingdom of heaven is breaking in. To bring comfort, to bring blessing to those who would believe and follow Jesus. And the first glimpse that the world gets of it is us. We're tasked with putting Jesus on display in such a way that people would see him in us. Last November, Nikki and I found out that she was pregnant. But when the time came to hear the heartbeat, we were met with the news that there was no heartbeat. It was devastating. We were so sad and instantly found ourselves in a deep state of mourning. We have four kiddos, but this was actually our sixth pregnancy. We had another miscarriage about three years ago. But it was at a busy time of our life, and so it kind of got missed, if that makes any sense. And so now, with the news of this miscarriage, we were thrown into the depths of mourning the effects of sin over our world. What was amazing was that almost immediately after we got the news, we were met with a comfort. The first was a comfort that we knew that God had promised never to leave us. It was an intellectual comfort. But the second was a physical comfort. We were immediately surrounded by our community who came and just took our kids so that we could cry and nap together on the first day we found out. They came and brought us meals. They came and cleaned our house. Our church community came around us in an incredible, incredible way. And we felt the comfort of God through them even when our minds would at times be weak and feeble and not be able to quite wrap our heads around just the shattered and broken version of ourselves that we had become in such a quick time. See, this world is under a curse. It's broken. It's not functioning well. And God has given us the lens to see it, and he's given us nerves both physical and spiritual to feel it so that we can show the world who can't see it because they're outside of Jesus that there's a hope because they still feel the brokenness but they don't know the hope and so through the season we decided to put in our Christmas card what had happened it's like that's right joy to the world on the front and on the back hey this happened to us and 
And yet, it was, we immediately, after sending them out, we're so glad that we did. Because we, we started to hear from people who'd had similar things happen. In fact, that's what happened when you experience loss. Is you start to find out that loss is all around you. You just don't always know it. And we started to have conversations with Christians and non-Christians alike about what we were going through. And it was so powerful and incredible to be able to claim hope in God and declare, we are not confused, even though this has happened. And to see the bafflement on people's faces who don't have Jesus. That's what God's calling us to. Fine family, that's why God brings mourning into our life. That's why he calls us to mourn the effects of sin in our lives and on the world. And we're to show it so that people might see that our hope is in something bigger than our ability to just dull the pain or ignore it. Because that's all they can do. How we live in and relate to one another in this broken world matters so much. That's why and how we're being made to be more like Jesus every day. We have the hope that the end game of sin is defeated. Death is no more. This broken world is passing away. And once and for all, we will be made whole in the presence of our king. Someday we will wake up and not make the journey to the house of mourning ever again. That's the hope that the world needs. When natural, when natural disaster strikes, diagnosis of cancer, endless political posturing, ever-increasing reports of violence, the threat of war and calamity on the daily nightly news, not even to mention just the pain of being human and aging and just facing each day knowing that this life is not going to last. But the world doesn't need to see people who are stoic, who just plaster on a happy face pretending that everything is just fine while they wait, secluded, for Jesus to come back, inventing new rules to remain unstained and separate from the world around them. That's not how we're called to live. What the world needs to see is a people who rightly mourn the brokenness of this world with a bold hope that there is both present and future comfort in Jesus alone. Because the time is coming when he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away and he is making all things new. So as I close, I just want to leave you with an illustration came in the middle of my preparation. I was at the Monona Library. That's where I tend to go to study because I have four kids in my house, as I mentioned earlier. And I was working on this sermon, and I've been there for a while, and, you know, usually I'll get after it a little bit and then kind of need to, to, to kind of come back into reality and take a little break. And, and as I kind of came out of what I was doing, what I was thinking about, I felt the warmth. And I looked around And I saw, because I try to strategically place myself between the two heat vents that are there because I get warm easily and so I didn't want to overheat. And so I kind of looked to see like, oh, maybe I missed where I was supposed to sit. And and it was the sun. And it was shining through the window and it was warming me up and the table. And it it was actually really nice. It was welcome. 
it gotten a little chilly in there and I hadn't noticed. But as I was enjoying the heat, well, the warmth, it wasn't quite hot, but the warmth, as I was enjoying the warmth, I realized it was not an accurate picture of the weather outside. This was Friday. It was like negative two. And that I was going to have to put on my coat and my hat and my scarf and my gloves and skate down the hill to my car after because it was negative two. But for a moment, while I was mourning the cold winter, I had the hope that summer will come. And all the ice will melt. And I'd be able to walk out of the library without my coat, in a short sleeve shirt, and maybe some shorts and sandals, and just walk in the light and the heat of the sun to my car and go to a barbecue or take my family to Devil's Lake. And so the hope for us is that the winter of this world is coming to an end. Summer will come and we'll be with our king once again. And it's such good news. So while we mourn, let's keep that in mind. Let's look to Jesus and let's pray. God, I thank you for this time that we could have together. Father, I marvel at your wisdom, at your ingenuity, at how brilliant and smart you are. And you built a world that was intended to function, to funnel all of our attention and all of our affection to you. And we broke it by disobeying you. And we continue in our disobedient sin patterns. But God, you provided a way through Jesus that we might know you. And that while we still feel the effects of sin, our sin, the sin of the world around us, the curse that the world is under, while we still feel it, we have hope that it will end and we will be with you. God, thank you. Spirit, I pray that you would continue to comfort us. As we turn now towards communion, this beloved table, and then as we look to leave and make our way out into this world. God, we love you and we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.